0: Hello everyone and welcome to Irenicast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. This week we have another great interview for you from Mona interviewing community organizers Seth and Joe. They've really great stories to tell and also just give us some information on the work that they do. If you have any comments on this particular episode, you can do that at irenicast.com/54 And if you have any comments for the show in general, you can always do that at irentocast.com slash feedback. We always welcome your questions, comments, and concerns. Mm -hmm. And finally, before we get into the interview, if you like what you hear, you can always support the show at irentocast.com slash support, and there you'll see all the ways in which you can do that. So for this week, enjoy the interview.
1: So I'd like to introduce to you two of my friends who are professional organizers. Their names are Seth Woody and Joseph Sheeran. So I'd like to introduce you to Seth first, and I'll let Seth give you a bit more about his background. But Seth is a professional community organizer. Is that right, Seth?
0: That is correct. And thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. So professional community organizer. Holy moly. What a title.
1: (laughs) I'm excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for weeks because I'm excited to learn more about this myself and just ask you guys the question, what the heck is community organizing? Why do we need it? Why do we do it? And how does it actually work? Because I think a lot of times it kind of stays in a hidden realm of of work in the world. Is that kind of a fair way to say it?
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. I think... um, at least in my experience, a lot of times people hear community organizing and they think, uh, mainstream political organizing. And, um, that is one of the things that I do and we do. Um, but it's definitely not the only thing. And at least for me personally, it it really comes out of my commitment to what I like to call the Jesus movement and my personal, uh, spiritual experience. Yeah. My commitment to justice and love, uh, That's really, for me, it's an honor to be called a professional community organizer because that's where I think it's coming from.
1: That's awesome. So where do you work currently or what are you working on currently?
0: Yeah, so I work for an organization called uh, the Leadership Development Initiative. And we teach and train and coach uh, mostly lay people in the Episcopal and Lutheran denominations in basic skills of community organizing. It's out of a tradition called the Gansian model of organizing. Who's this guy named Marshall Gans? Worked with the farm workers out in California back in the '60s. And we teach five principles: um, storytelling, good team building, um, story and strategy structure, personal narrative, which is sort of our our go-to, and then symbolic versus instrumental demands. So we teach folks in the church how to take these basic skills and apply them in their parish context or apply them in a local political context or apply them to their national denomination.
1: Wow. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about that. Before we proceed and ask questions about what all that means, I'd like to get Joe on here and introduce him. So let's say hi to Joe Sheeran, everybody. So Joe, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're working on currently?
2: Yeah, um so I I'm currently in the, in uh, divinity school uh in at Vanderbilt and getting connected with some of the movement groups here in here in Nashville, Tennessee. So so first off, uh, I'm working with uh, an affiliate of Interfaith Worker Justice down here called Workers Dignity. It's it's a workers center, so it's a place where an organization for workers to come together and organize and address uh, a lot of systemic problems. With with employers in Nashville, in particular, there's uh, a lot of what we end up doing is, is wage theft. So workers get their wages stolen from them one way or another, and then we have to figure out how to how to help them get that back. I say I use the word help. I I really wish I hadn't because it's it's really more about we we work together to figure out you know what is a way to do that because it's 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 really about empowering workers and that kind of gets at some of the questions of what is organizing. And then other things I'm involved in: uh, Surge Nashville, setting up for racial justice, which is kind of like the—it's a—it's a group of, of white folks working to raise racial consciousness amongst white people for anti-racist work. And then, uh, lastly, uh, I'm working with an elected official in South Nashville and some some community organizations there, uh, like a community center and, and so forth to try to build some neighborhood power and especially overlooked neighborhood in South Nashville that I I did some electoral work in. And while I was there, I said, you know, it'd be really great to come back here and instead of asking people for their vote to say, you know, what, what are problems? What needs to be worked on? How can we be a, be a place to convene that and and start to ask those questions of what are, what are what are our gifts and skills and how do we apply that? So that's kind of a nascent project that I'm working on as well.
1: Awesome. You guys both have your hands in a lot of different types of work, it sounds like. Um, so I want to ask a question about what, you know, we want to get to the central question of like what community organizing is for those of us who don't have an awareness um, of it, because it tends to be, um, you know, a kind of a hidden, I said earlier, sort of a hidden industry is it's I understand a lot of it movements intentionally don't have charismatic front leaders. So you might not know that community organizing is happening right underneath your nose or in your community. So I want to ask that question, what is it? But before we do that, I wanted to ask about how you both got into this work because sometimes we get into this work accidentally because we're just passionate about, about a project. And then we end up learning about the larger picture later on. So uh, for you, Seth, how, how did you get into this kind of work?
0: Yeah, I was studying theology at Boston college, And I had this great opportunity to live in intentional Christian community and um, learn about liberation theology in El Salvador. I went to a Jesuit university there for six months with a group of American students and Salvadoran students. And yeah, we got the chance to see this really beautiful witness of God's love in a country that has experienced a lot of economic uh, marginalization and a lot of violence through a civil war, and people were motivated to do courageous, courageous acts of justice, and in a way that had no central leadership. And I was just totally floored by that. And I've kind of been following the bug ever since. I left school, lived in a monastery for a year in Cambridge, and tried to figure out how was I going to be a disciple, and do the justice work that I knew needed to be done. And I got involved through a um, fellowship program called Life Together, where I met Joe, actually. And I got placed with an organization called the Youth Jobs Coalition, which was organizing young people of color in Massachusetts to gain full employment and resist mass incarceration. And it was there that I learned some of these basic principles. And I learned a little bit about the history of organizing And got really excited about, oh, my gosh, not only is this a passionate thing where justice can happen, but it's also a school of thought. There's a craft, and I can belong to this community. Uh, And that was super appealing to me. And eventually, I wanted to work more in my own context. So I took a job with Leadership Development Initiative and have been working with church folks, trying to get them involved in justice movements across the country Uh, and really have an analysis about their own theology. Is God's dream possible? And if so, how can we organize ourselves and our neighbors to be a part of it? Yeah, so I love organizing. I think it's great. And and there's lots of complicated stuff that goes with it, too.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how the same sorts of principles or ways that you work can be tailored to different issues. Um, So how about you, Joe? How did you get involved in this?
2: Yeah, um, well... Just to start, I will say that it's been a a long journey. I grew up in a kind of a bedroom community of Detroit, and the kind of lessons that I learned as a child are very much antithetical to what I believe now. So like first, I would say, like of the set of things that were important, was I, I spent some time on a reservation in South Dakota, which at the time, my, my reasons for going there had more to do with, I want to get the hell away from everybody than anything else but while i was there i just became kind of aware of the fact that you know this is a place where those things that i were told were true about the way that the world works and about you know how what how you achieve success in our society break down that 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 was a place where where our country had taken uh, a whole group of people and said you know what you are going to live this particular lifestyle that you didn't come up with that you haven't been living on this land, that's not good for it, uh, and we're, you know, not really going to give you tools to do anything about that. So that was kind of a, a breaking things down moment. And then, like Seth said, we we both were in life together. So shortly after being there, I, I came to Boston and was assigned to uh, my workplace. I ended up really liking it, but at the time was pretty unhappy because. I had specifically tried to avoid working on on the, on the this campaign to uh, increase the minimum wage because I, I just wasn't sure about that ideologically. And then ended up getting assigned to it and then ended up somehow being able to, to wrap my head around it with, with the help of some friends and realized that actually this was what I needed to be doing, was to be doing that kind of broad campaign work. And then from there, um, after that, was successful, and I moved on to Nashville. I tried to recreate the same thing here in Nashville, and realized that actually I wanted to go one level further than that, from kind of a, a campaign-based model to more of a more of a grassroots uh, kind of thing. Just because I, I I just felt like that was a place where more change was happening, and there was more work to be done. Um, so you know, coming to Nashville. I, I met a handful of people through the divinity school that just really challenged uh what I was thinking. You know, my response to the challenge was, well, you know, show me what you're doing and, and I'll try not to figure it out and see if I understand it. And I can't say that I do, but I'm liking what I'm doing.
1: It's interesting you guys have some parallel stories that you both had these really formative experiences in communities that were not your community of origin that raise your consciousness and then you Both came to the residency program and accidentally kind of got into organizing, which is what I hear a lot from people who who start this kind of work, because most of us just out in the public don't know what organizers do. They might be familiar with the phrase. So that's my next question. What the heck is community organizing? Beautiful. (laughs) Anybody want to take a shot?
0: (laughs) I can uh, attempt to answer that question because truly my day-to-day seems very unpredictable. But uh, I think at its core, organizing is about building relationships with people and not just any relationship, but a relationship of accountability and of trust and of mutual alignment and support. And that through those relationships, we can build power. We can build the, the power to make changes in our local community. We can build power to change things in our church. We can build power to change things in our government. And with that power, we can implement the change that we want to see. So it's building relationships to build power to create the change we want to see in the world. I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to identify what is or is not organizing because so much of the world is actually building these social relationships to build the kind of power you need to make a change. And collectively, you could call those people organizers. Sometimes they're called something entirely different. But generally, when someone refers to a community organizer, they're talking about someone that's doing those things.
1: That's a good answer. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, just real quick, before we ask Joe the same question, a lot of times I think people associate power with something negative, but I, I understand that it means something very specific in an organizing context. Can you, you, you explained a little bit, but can you help us understand what that means?
0: Yeah. And this actually gets to a piece about the different types of organizing or different traditions of organizing. So in my frame of reference, I like to talk about a social view of power. And what I mean by that is that uh, fundamentally, we understand individuals in a system to have the quote-unquote power to consent or withdraw consent from the institutions that allow them to participate in daily life. So one could say in that context, power is really the ability to choose and the Mm. ability to enact One's belief in a public way. Now, sometimes uh, organizers talk about a, a monolithic view of power. And power in a monolithic sense means that there's a hierarchy of means. And some have a lot of means and some have very little means. And power is really about do you have the leveraging in a system to enact that change? So at the top of a monolithic system, you might have a pope or you might have a general. And these people have absolute control. And only by building enough power below them can you leverage your ability to enact the change you want to see.
1: That is interesting and very helpful. Thank you, Seth. How about you, Joe? What does it mean to you to be in community organizing and and to do this kind of work?
0: You know, I think
2: what Seth has said about power really kind of hinges at it. Community organizing is about trying to create and collect power into a group to accomplish some some goal or some end. So you can do community organizing for any number of goals, ideologies, what whatever. Generally, when we talk about community organizing, we're talking about folks that are taking on a more liberative perspective, ideally. But that's not always the case. And, and the right wing has increasingly used some of these strategies in the recent years. But to me, when I think about community organizing, I think about... A lot of folks talk about power and they say you get power in two ways. One is by organizing money or to use Seth's words uh, means and the other is organizing people. And so community organizing for me doesn't always exclude the organizing of money but usually means the organizing of people in a situation where there isn't a concentration of money or means that's already pushing for that that change or goal that you want to see. Um, and so this is you know the answer of folks who who want that change but don't yet have the powers to go out and create that network of people to accomplish it. You know, all those things that Seth said about accountability and stuff are important, and I'm not even going to try to achieve, achieve that level of eloquence. But I would say for me it boils down to organizing people to counter the effects of organized money at times.
1: That it's really interesting that you brought that up because I, I wanted to ask you both about this. I know a lot of people who are incredibly disillusioned at their ability or their power, their sense of power. Maybe that's a feeling of disenfranchisement or disempowerment that um, we have. We we exist in a corporatocracy in a society that is so run by big money that those of us who are in the grassroots level feel completely disenchanted with even concepts of democracy or being involved in in any sort of social movement, you know. Um, so I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. How, how do, what does that look like to combat organizing that's, that's based so much on money when you don't have any?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to take a stab at that because I spend a lot of time thinking about that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I think for me, it comes down to a truth that you already named, Mona, which is that a lot of people experience that disempowerment. A lot of people, pretty much everyone, experiences that disempowerment. And if we can build relationships with that multitude of people and say, hey, you feel disempowerment, guess what? I'm feeling that too. Also your neighbor, also their neighbor, also my mom, also my mom's brother-in-law, everyone is experiencing that disenfranchisement. And it might look differently. It might take on different shapes. Some people might benefit. Some people might not. But collectively, we're all experiencing that. There is such hope in that truth. We actually have all the people we need to build the kind of world we want to belong to. Hmm. And I think it's, it's really about combating this myth that there aren't other people out there experiencing that. So a lot of what I do is really just trying to speak to folks, particularly in the church, and say, we, we have a belief system that totally backs us up. This world is crazy. Big money is insane. It's evil. We have a belief system that says that, and we sit on our, pardon my French, asses and do nothing. We have an opportunity to claim our beliefs in a profound way, and that gives me a lot of hope. And as an organizer, it's always about, like, can we build that relationships where you and I can share our vulnerability that we are disempowered?
1: That's awesome. I'm, like, getting excited as you're talking. (laughs) Like, yeah, we can do it, guys. Um, No, I know that, though, this is so much more complicated than just getting excitement and and mobilizing people out of a sense of charisma or out of a sense of, of urgency, I understand this is very much a long game and a strategic game of trying to navigate something that systems that are almost unnavigable. Yeah. Would you say that's correct or would you change that?
0: Yeah, I think uh, that's very true. And again, I want to lean on our tradition, man. We've been playing a long game, you know, this is not, this is not what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think because of that, for me personally, that's why I, I, try to emphasize this idea of targeting the public, of really building this social view of power. Because the long game is that we can actually just withdraw our consent. And of course, what that looks like is nonviolent resistance, and the system will respond accordingly. And we've seen that in history. And we need to build the kind of courage and relationships grounded in love and trust that are able to take that on, knowing the risks, knowing the costs, yeah, I mean, we're we're a, a people of the resurrection. We're a people of the crucifixion. Mm. And, and that's a long game. That's a long game. Uh, but it does start, I really, it does start with that heart experience, that excitement, that energy, this is possible, we can do it. And it's then, how do we translate that into relationships? How do we translate that into structure? One of the things I talk a lot about is, what does a truly decentralized structure look like? And I think a lot of people, they hear that, and what they translate it into is a system without order, chaos. And I actually think that's really underselling the power of decentralization. In my experience, decentralization actually requires more structure. It requires more understanding of the rules and the systems at play. An example like Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the most decentralized organizations in the world. One of the most empowering organizations of the world, the twelve traditions and the twelve practices are truly beautiful and very simple and also very complex. And I think that's the kind of model of organizing that we want to live into.
1: It's nice to get that perspective. Um, and I know we're we're talking in like kind of large abstract terms, which are hard for some people to grasp. So we'll we'll bring it to the ground in just a moment, but. Um, Joe, I want to ask you about something you said a few minutes ago, use the, the phrase movement group. And I wanted, wondered if you could flesh that out for us and help us understand what that means and what that looks like.
2: Sure. Um, before I get into that, I just want to suggest during the editing that we get some Hammond organ behind Seth on that last comment. (laughs) That would just really make it for me. Um,
1: it was pretty epic. It really was. You preached a little bit in there, Seth. Sorry, I'm
2: I'm a preacher at heart.
1: Oh, don't apologize. That's great. That's what we love about you,
2: Seth. (laughs) Um, what was the question again? Sorry. Use the phrase out.
1: movement group. So I'm just trying to for people who have like no concept of what this is um and are trying to gra- get their minds around what it is. So use the word movement group and I was wondering if you could help listeners understand what that means.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So movement groups, when I use the word movement groups, I mean um to put it plainly, uh and unhelpfully, groups that are about the movement now what i mean by the movement is is admittedly a a vague and general term but i'm i'm referring to that concept of we are disenfranchised people all all of us that impacts us in different ways but we share in that disempowerment that seth was speaking about a moment ago and the movement is let's let's end that let's let's address class issues let's address race issues let's address uh, oppression of folks of queer sexual and gender orientations. Let's address that. Why? Why is this happening? Why are we living in a in a in a world where there are so many problems? And instead of taking it to the people that are at the top, the people that are creating those problems, we're you know angrily yelling at each other. So when I speak about movement groups, I mean groups like the Black Lives Matter movement, groups like Surge, groups like just a number of of organizations, and and some of them might not necessarily even see themselves as connected to each other, but they are. This is not a, a political ideology. I'll, I mean, in the sense of like you won't find this on your ticket uh, when you go to vote, but it, it is an ideology of, of 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 resistance to oppression and wanting to wanting to change that. So when I speak about movement groups, I mean groups that are. Uh, engaged some of them are engaged in community organizing, some of them are engaged in just uh a smaller scale of community organizing within themselves. I would I would argue that there is a a consistency beneath all that, which is they're they're looking at how do we how do we how do we arrive at the kingdom of God? If I'm gonna use my I'm gonna put my feature hat on for a second. The kingdom of God is what I think movement groups are aiming at, although many of them would not use that word.
1: But there is a really strong tie between organizing c- civil rights, nonviolent resistance, and preachers in particular. So there, I think there is a, as far as I understand, there's a, there's a tradition there that you're speaking oh, yeah.
2: to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is cool. Which is very cool. And I think that that tradition gets swept under the rug a lot. I'm really glad yeah. you brought, brought up Black Lives Matter, too, because I think a lot of us who um, if you're not really involved in that movement or you're just kind of a sidelines person, like a supporter, or an ally, you don't realize that Black Lives Matter is a really intentional movement, that the organizing is incredibly involved and strategic and specific. And it, for a lot of us, you know, just out in the world, we just see a hashtag and we think it happens by accident and we don't realize there are people actually moving and shaking and changing and making, making this a public spectacle. Um, so...
0: Yeah. Can I speak to that for a second? Please, please do. Yeah. Um, I think when we talk about movements and Black Lives Matter is one of them, United We Dream and the Dreamer movement for immigrant rights is another that comes to mind for me, or the climate justice movement. Sometimes it's very hard to remember that there are people behind that, right? Uh, we We lose the agency of that individual. And... a a lot of times we tend to assign a certain personality to a movement. So when people think civil rights, they assign Martin Luther King to Mm. what the civil rights movement was. Um, And they may not think of Ella Baker or Baynard Rustin or the countless thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that sacrificed to make those changes possible. And with black lives matter, I think, Folks are again challenged to think in those terms. There's not a charismatic leader of Black Lives Matter. And so we see it and we can't identify its personality or what's true or what's not true. And that's one of the problems that the movement has right now. It needs to find a way to articulate itself. And I would just ask people to remember that, it, you know, it's human beings. I mean, these are folks in college. These are folks who uh, have families that are giving up their lives and their time, uh, and sacrificing a lot of personal safety even to bring it to the streets and to bring it to our Thanksgiving dinner tables. And, um, that's huge. And I think that you can see in that when I, what we talk about when we say community organizing, the courage and the sacrifice behind these movements, that's the bread and bones, uh, the bread and bones, the bread and butter, the meat on the bones, of what community organizing
1: is, so it's it's really interesting. You're you're saying this, Seth, and I'm I've been thinking a lot about what it means to have sanctioned and unsanctioned spaces, and I'm kind of borrowing this from Kavanaugh, who wrote a book called "Migrations of the Holy: uh, God, State, and the Political Meaning of the Church." I don't agree with everything he says, but he talks about he kind of points to this isn't exactly his idea in the book. I'll I'll say what it is in a sec. But he kind of points to this idea that the way that we have been conditioned to think sociologically and, and socially about our about our social order and our systems and our government is that um the sanctioned is in the impersonal spaces, the official spaces are the most important spaces and the relational and the grassroots are unimportant or sidelined. But, and he makes a case for the fact that the church is the space for the unofficial to become sanctioned in a way that the state should not be able to sanction. I don't know if I'm making complete sense in that, but he says basically he, he equates the state with basically is like a telephone service provider who, who should not be responsible for making moral decisions. It's really up to the people and up to religious communities and other types of communities to inform the state and to demand moral action. But we can't, we can't anticipate or trust the state, he says, to, to mitigate uh morality on our behalf or or to be kind toward us. Like it's really our job to take that into our own hands. And I think that's that idea represents a huge paradigm shift for a lot of us. Um, especially I think for those of us who are raised with the idea that we should have a theocracy, that this should be God's country, that you know Jesus should rule America. That's what I was raised with. And um not to knock anybody per se who still believes that, but um Kavanaugh's pointing to a really important distinction between the state and the church that, um, that really as, as people of the grassroots, we, we have an existence that's beyond what the state allows us to be and, and, and sanctions us to be that, that meaning is beyond our governmental structures. So I, I've been really moved by this idea. And so thinking about organizing in those terms, it's kind of like a reclaiming of, of humanity and meaning and not letting, you know, governmental structures determine Every portion of our lives. What do you guys mm. think about that?
0: Oh man, got me chomping. I want to say one. I want to say one thing, and I want to let Joe talk too. Um, okay. I think I got uh, two minor things that I would contend in that. Although I'm, I'm with the spirit of it for sure. One is that the way he's describing the state makes it seem like we don't have direct agency over what and who and how the state is, which. Mm. We could if we decided we want to. And the second thing I'll say is, to the point about theocracy, I would love to see (laughs) what the world would look like if Jesus actually had moral authority over what was going on. Because whatever anyone has ever called a theocracy in the history of the world has paled to the real justice that I experienced from Jesus Christ. So. While I'm not necessarily arguing for a theocracy, I do think uh, a state that reflects the values of, of, of the real Jesus, and I think we can have a debate about what that is.
1: Yeah, what's the real Jesus, Seth? Please enlighten us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll say, I'll say where, one thing where about the, the real Jesus. I'll say one thing about the real Jesus. In my experience, and I think a lot of people's experience, Jesus was a person of color who was born homeless to a homeless family who was a immigrant and an undocumented immigrant at that who resisted the political apparatus of the state and the church and was murdered by said institutions because of the way he behaved. That's my experience of Jesus. And I could make an argument that Jesus was queer and we could talk about that later, but, uh, all of those things to me point to a very radical understanding. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent and I want to let you. Well, know. <laughs> I asked.
1: I, <laughs> I set you up for that. Um, Joe, what do you think about that idea of um, sanctioned space, separation of church and state and our, our role in, in navigating that? Hmm.
2: Um, well, I, I would also say that with like Seth, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea of, of, of the ideas of Jesus guiding how we do things. I just think that people take things that they want to be true and then ascribe them to Jesus. So for instance, to your point there about this the, the church as a as a a venue to kind of um how how did, how did he put it?
1: I'm to asking kind of, you a question. Re- yeah, no, to kind of reclaim sanctioned space and not let the state mitigate everything that we know as like credible. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's he's kind of writing in a philosophical plane but
2: Right. So in order to do that you have to as you as you pointed out you have to break down a lot of things. The most nefarious things you have to break down is the idea that criticizing things and criticizing people whether they're state officials or businessmen or your pastor is is somehow unchristian. That that taking uh, a strong stance on something and saying you know what this is not how I am called to live as a Christian really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Um, because as you as you pointed out, a lot of people have this idea that being Christian means being polite and I would disagree. And so you first, you have to get through that idea that you can in fact do that. And second, you have to get people the idea that it would work. So one of the things that I regularly come against in two different areas of my work, one, which is organizing folks in a, in a low-income, predominantly black community in South Nashville uh, that has repeatedly been overlooked by institutions with power in Nashville is the idea that, that there is anything to gain at all. Because I think a lot of people at this point have been told no so many times or they've been told, hey, let's get something together, and then the people invested in it turn out to have people the people from the outside that come in to, to work on that turn out to not be what they said they were this has happened so many times and continues to happen so many times eventually you just get numb to it uh and Can then you give someone... us some
1: examples of those sure
2: things? so we recently took a survey of how many groups are providing resources to this community and we found that it was a much much higher number than we knew but so many of these groups are are part of what could be termed the nonprofit industrial complex, which is you know nonprofits that exist for the sake of, hey, aren't we great? We're doing something. We should not to say that it's not that many nonprofits don't do things that are worth doing, but just you know sometimes there are, there are broader questions asked about how is this making a concrete sustainable difference that is hard to ask if you're you know trying to continue to have a budget, get revenue from grants, and pay staff and keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. Those are hard questions to ask. The effect of that in, in my neighborhood has been that when I go around, when I went around campaigning, I got a lot of people just saying, you know, where where are the candidates when it's not an election, uh, which is a very fair point. And I, I made sure to listen to every single one of those sermons. And then, you know, after the election, I had a lot of people telling me, when I knock on their door and say you know hey we're we're interested in trying to start a conversation is that something that you're interested in like what what are things that that you're you're frustrated about you know a lot of folks don't want to engage in that because they're they're afraid that it will have that it will be a waste of time because they've seen it be a waste of time so many times already so you you've you've got that kind of collective debris of folks who who didn't follow through or had different intentions than they let on in the way of that that can create problems. Now, the other side of my work is I work in kind of covertly uh, going to, well, overtly, but I don't necessarily brand myself this way. But I I work with workers' dignity to try to increase the number of, of faith allies that we have in Nashville. So I'll go to a church and try to strike up some conversations and get some folks to come out and see if i can meet with the pastor and talk about you know what what is your church doing to live into these aspects of of our vocation as as christians and then to see if that can if if that is something that workers dignity can make sense with uh most recently with that i've been leading a lot of bible studies at a um a wealthy mainline congregation in nashville and you know it's not that it's not that folks don't see these problems. It's just that people are, are skeptical about their ability to change that because they see the government as this thing that you know, has authority is ultimately the only thing that's going to make the difference. And they, as Seth had pointed out, they don't necessarily see if you get enough drops of water in a bucket, you're going to raise that bucket or raise the level in that bucket. And that's, that's a hard shift to make. Uh, and I think a lot of people just find that really discouraging. You know, into and, and that end, one of the things that organizing, you know, when you're when you're when you're first starting out as a baby organizer like I am, is people tell you, you know, make sure your goals are are measurable and achievable, and and you know they're they're little, but they you can you can point to them and say we definitely did something here, and it's it's like lifting weights. You know, you don't start out doing a 400 pound deadlift. Uh, you start out with something else, something something lighter. I have no idea if I've answered the question, but I've talked,
1: so I'm going to stop. <laughs> well, no, what you're saying is it, it's very fitting because I think going back to the theme of disillusionment that's been brought up a couple of times, um, first of all, it seems like it can be almost off-putting, like what you said, trying to clean up the mess after people who've gone ahead of you and have done a really crappy job and even maybe made, made things worse by promising and not following through. But also um, just how hard it can be to bite off tiny chunks when there are the, these massively looming problems happening. And you can't do much about the big stuff, but you can take on these little little projects. You know, like you said... um, and that's, I think where that's this strategy in the long game seems to come into play. But So I want to play devil's ag- advocate for just a moment that why, okay, I feel even horrible just saying this. Okay. So pretend I'm not Mona for a minute, pretend I'm somebody else. Why you guys just want to make the world about problems? You're just focusing on the negative. <laughs> so go back to something you said earlier, Joe, that it, it can seem unchristian to criticize or complain, you know, but I think those of us who walk around with a certain amount of, um, Privilege or accidental opportunity uh, we we can't understand what it means to have a system that really not only doesn't serve our needs but works against our needs actively um, and puts us on trial or you know the myriad of other things so I'm trying to talk about this in a little bit more concrete terms for those of us who are sh- still having a hard time um, getting our minds around this so for example why why should we why should we fight for a society where you know everyone um despite their race or ethnic you know uh origin is treated equally and has the same amount of of opportunity like why why should we care as people of faith that's uh, is that a dumb question i mean i think a lot of people oh, think yeah. that way like it's a great question why should we be politically correct why should we try that hard like i don't have that much energy to to think about this to, that hard or work on it you know
0: i mean getting back up on that preaching horse but uh Do it. Do it. (laughs) You know, I think we've all seen those bracelets hopping around there. It says, what would Jesus do? I mean, Mm. we want to get down to basics. Why should we organize for a society in a world that all people aren't included, regardless of their cultural or racial or ethnic experience? I mean, come on. Is that even a, you know, if you want to be about it and be a follower of Jesus, I don't know what to tell you. And as a human being on that level, yeah, I mean, relationships across difference are the most life-giving I've ever experienced, and they're hard. But I learn a lot more about what it means to be Seth, about what it means to be a fellow human being from people that uh, don't experience the things that I experience. And I think that's why marriage is so important, you know, this amazing experience to see someone who's different than you and learn about the world and see the world through their eyes for a lifetime you learn for a lifetime that's beautiful so as a fellow human being i would say it's just a better world that way let alone the like rational concepts of justice and you know why would we organize for a world that includes now that uh you know we've had 500 years of exclusion and colonization and white supremacy and the destruction of indigenous people and I feel like every angle you look at it, except for one that has no critical analysis whatsoever, there's a reason.
1: It it seems like in this case that um, when we capitulate to the individualism of our day, you know, if we stop being countercultural as people of faith, mm-hmm. if we allow ourselves to become apath- apathetic, we really, by doing nothing and by being quiet, we really actually are on the side of those who are doing bad things like I can't, I can't say yeah. it any more simple than that. You know, like if, if you don't, if you don't at least cry out about Flint and the water in Flint, Michigan, like if you don't say something like you are actually working on the side of people who are abusing others, you know? So you, totally, it's, it's hard for us though, to wrap our minds around that when we've been so conditioned over and over and over and over again by, you know, our media and the way that our systems are set up to just care about our own isolated experience in the world. Yeah.
0: And I think there's one important thing behind that Monia, that is worth playing out, which is that all of us as individuals are so worthy, so worthy of God's love as individuals. And there's a truth there that our culture plays with, but it is a very true thing. We are all worthy. And regardless of our behavior, regardless of our choices, we are worthy of God's love. And in so making those choices, we can live into a world where we can experience our worthiness through the relationships with other people. So I, I think it's, it's we only have one side of the story when we are brought in by our culture. And that can be really, really negative. We need the whole thing.
1: So, so the way you're talking about this, I mean, my first response was, can't we just feel God's love in our hearts and that's enough? <laughs> like, does the material world matter? Um, <sighs> you <know. laughs> Joe, you have something to say about that?
2: Um, I do, but why don't you finish your thought?
1: Well. My thought was it it sounds like what you're saying in the way and, and I'm trying to like understand how to think more like an organizer, you know, by talking to you guys. But it sounds like what you're saying is um you can boil down all of our social and governmental structures to just describing them in terms of relationship. And that actually could work.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um what what I wanna say and Mona, while you were, you know, playing devil's advocate, I was I was hearing the words of some folks that are that are very close to me that they often what they will say to me you know that's great joe but you're not living in the real world seth i don't know if you ever hear that line when are you going to live in the real world you know that that idea that this belief that we could we could arrive at, at a global or or national community of folks where we really care about people and put that first the idea that that's just so far fetched that it's not even possible, so why are you trying? Is is so crucial to supporting and and undergirding those very structures. The idea that they're inevitable, so why why resistance is futile? Give up. And to which I would say like you I, I can't remember where this quote comes from. I've repeated it so many times, but you make the path by walking and you you make the world you want to live in by living in it. Um so if you if you choose to live in that world. Then don't be surprised if that's the world that you see, but there is an alternative and it's harder in some ways, but it's also easier in other ways.
1: I like that a lot. That's helpful to, I think, like change your thinking over and like, yeah, you you have more choice than you realize.
2: Absolutely. And like, like Seth said earlier, we can, you know, one by one withdraw our consent from the status quo.
1: Yeah. So we're wrapping up our time. You guys, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you for coming on today. Um, so I want to ask two questions. First of all, is there any, are there any organizations that you're working on or any projects that you're working on that you want to give a great big shout out to and tell people to go check this out? This is an amazing cause. You should get behind it. Seth, do you have any, anything to add to that?
0: Yes, I would love to shout out to some of my people. The first I'll say is a... Uh, evangelical network of Christians. It's called the Transform Network. They do really awesome work with a lot of folks from mostly evangelical backgrounds who are trying to move into this world of social justice, this world of organizing, what it might look like. That's a great resource if you're coming from that experience. I am part of a national network of organizers called Momentum. And we train folks who have some experience in community organizing in um, the nature of popular movements and how do you scale your work from local to national. Um, So anyone that has some experience of organizing, they're really interested in learning more about the history of organizing and also how do we make things to scale, totally check out momentumcommunity.org. And then anyone who's interested in trying to learn more about what organizing is, can I get involved, how do I do it, two places to find out. One, the PICO, P-I-C-O, national group. Just type in pico.org. You'll find the information. There's probably a regional or local affiliate where you live, and they will teach you and train you and bring you in. It's people of faith organizing for justice across the country. And if you're lucky enough to be in the Boston area, you can hit me up um, at the Leadership Development Initiative. And my email is seth at LDI Team.org. And I would love to talk to you.
1: Awesome. Thank you. How about you, Joe? Oh, um,
2: I so just a few groups to spotlight. And, and to just to piggyback on Seth's uh, comment about PICO, uh, if you don't have a PICO affiliate where you live, A few other groups that are worth checking out that do uh, similar work. There's IAF, Industrial Areas Foundation, uh, Gamaliel Foundation, which uh, G-A-M-I-E-L-I-L-I-E-L. Google it. It'll fix it for you. Um, And then also uh, DART, D-A-R-T, are some other groups. Uh, DART in particular is more active in uh, the American South, if that happens to be where you are. Uh, also, if you're in the American South, I would strongly recommend that you check out the Highlander Center uh, in Newmarket, Tennessee, uh, either on the web or even better, in person. Uh, they're a really great incubator for social justice movements. They're one of the places where the civil rights movement went and kind of got them got themselves organized. Other places, more specific to Nashville that I would highlight, the Skerritt Bennett Center. It was a, a women's college back in the day, but it is, it is changing its gears, and its latest iteration is trying to lean really heavily into supporting faith-based organizing uh, and other organizing efforts in the, middle, in the Mid-South and also across the South. And then lastly, I would, I would encourage people to check out surge, SURJ, S-U-R-J, uh, which is that group I mentioned earlier about organizing white people for our anti-racist work, probably a surge in your area. Uh, so that's worth checking out if you want to specifically focus on that that issue of race. And then lastly, ask people to go check out uh, Workers' Dignity at workersdignity.org. Uh, we're currently uh, raising funds because we're going to be launching the first uh, ever worker-owned radio station in Nashville, Tennessee. The program is going to be entirely supplied and controlled by workers and their allies here in Nashville. Uh, so that's going to be really incredible benefit for just movement work here in, in, in Nashville. So I would ask folks to check those out. And you know, if you want to ask me some questions, I guess I'll if I gave his email, I'll give mine out. Uh, I'm just joseph.m.sheeran. Uh, Sheeran is spelled like Ed Sheeran, at gmail.com.
1: Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This is phenomenal. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes so you can check out if you didn't catch something. Um, and my last question to close this out is this. How do people just start doing this? Can you just start doing this? Can you just jump in somewhere and just start being an organizer?
0: Uh, (laughs) You can can definitely do, I would say, you can always build relationships to build power to make a change. You can always do that. Any context, any time, you can do that. I would highly suggest finding some training if you want to do more and learn a little bit more just because it's so hard to do it on your own. And it's so much better to have a community of peers around you doing the work. So that's what I'm going to say. And thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time having this conversation and I'm sure we'll keep having it.
1: I hope so. I hope so. Any last words, Joe? Um,
2: No, I would just reiterate what Seth said that, you know, anyone can do this work. All it means is, is, you know, gathering people together to address something. Um, But as you said, it's much easier to do it if you've got some training, if you've got some Other folks doing the work with you, having a name can be really helpful sometimes. Just give people a a box to put you into. And that's, you know, all that is not necessarily uh, essential to what the project is. Uh, What's essential is just the will to make the difference and the time and patience to do it yeah thank you so much for having me on and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this conversation and I'm glad I got to hear <laughs> I'm preach. glad I got to hear you
1: both so. preach seriously you guys are both phenomenal I thank you for your work on behalf of like you know all of the world and <laughs> and keep it up thank you all so right. much alright cheers have a good
2: one Mona you too bye bye